42, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Hear the word of the Lord. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Amen. I want to invite you, if you haven't already, to take out your copy of God's word and turn to Acts chapter 2. We're in the middle of our sermon series through the book of Acts. We're taking it in three sections. We're going to journey all the way until Easter, as, as the early church spreads through Jerusalem, we're going to stay in Jerusalem in the book of Acts, which takes us to the end of chapter 7, and we're going to finish that up right in time for Palm Sunday. We'll spend a couple weeks, Palm Sunday and Easter, and then we'll most likely jump right back into Acts chapter 8 and just keep right on rolling. Uh, in the book of Acts, we see that the it's called the Acts of the Apostles, but really what we're seeing here is that it is the Acts of the Lord Jesus Christ through His church. His church is beginning, and last week we saw that the early church doesn't just have this smaller group of 12, not even this slightly bigger group of 120 disciples, but now it is starting to spread, and we saw in one day 3,000 people came to faith in Jesus and were baptized and last week we focused on the source of that and we saw that it is through gospel proclamation that people come to faith in Jesus if we want to see our church grow if we want to see more people baptized we are going to have to share the gospel and we walked through Peter's sermon as he outlined the gospel and its content about Jesus's life death and resurrection and the grand effect of that was that through the Lord's sovereignty 3,000 people came to faith what's well, really interesting if you notice, if you parallel this little summary section that Luke gives us from verse 42 to verse 47, how the end of this passage parallels the end of Peter's sermon and that, that narrative account. Um, in our passage today, we see a very similar effect that we saw at the end of last week's passage. At the end of this section, Luke reports that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It's very similar to verse 41 so those who received this word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls so once again here at the end of a section we have many people coming to faith in Jesus the church growing and growing yet this time it seems that Luke is trying to show us that the growth of the church is not just connected to, not just linked to gospel proclamation, but it's also linked to gospel living. Peter presented this compelling message, and, and thousands of people responded with faith. Yet here, 
we're seeing more and more people respond with faith, but what they're responding to is not a message per se. They are responding to the entire Christian community's culture, the way that they live. Luke's showing us here that the way the church lives is in and of itself a witness for Jesus. People in Jerusalem were attracted to the new Christian community that was forming, and they wanted to get in on it. Now, within the last 50 years or so in America, really across Western society, churches have sought to have a similar effect, but they, they have chosen very different means. You see, we've seen a very significant cultural shift over the past 100 years. Um, for about 1,700 years, Christianity, more or less, was at the center of cultural life in most Western societies. Historians and sociologists, they refer to this era as Christendom. Even in, like, the United States, where we have a very pluralistic society, for the longest time, Christianity was, was right at the center of, of cultural life. Um, we, we still have remnants of that here in the South, here in Tupelo, but even here, Christianity is not at the center of cultural life in Tupelo. It's just not. I mean, there are far too many soccer tournaments on Sunday, you know, for you to convince me that Christianity is right at the center, the driving force of cultural life here in Tupelo. And, you know, what, what do I mean by, you know, Christianity being at the center of cultural life? Well, think of this. Schools. When schools were forming, they put stuff like the Ten Commandments in schools. Why would they do that? You know, it's, it's not, not a Christian school, not a Bible school, not a Sunday school, and, and just a school, the Ten Commandments. Well, it's because Christianity was at the center. What about the theological language that are in some of our founding documents as a nation? You know, that's more evidence. Christianity is at the center. Uh, in years past, there was actually social pressure to be involved in the local church. That's foreign to me. That's, that's foreign to a lot of us now. We don't experience that, where your friends... Your, your social circles, they actually cared whether or not you were a part of a church or whether or not you were attending a church. Um, you think about city architects, even. Like, years and years and years ago, when they, were, when they were, like, outlining what would be in, like, the town square. You know what was common? You'd have, like, a city hall, you, you know, maybe, like, a library, and then what else? First Baptist Church, right? Or First Whatever Church. There would be a church that was, you know, designed to be right at the center of the town square where, where like cultural life is happening. Employers, they would take into account church membership when hiring people. Like it was a, it was a check, it was a big deal. Like, oh, you're a member of this church. You're, you're a good person, it, it mattered. The good old days, right? Um, listen, this age of Christendom has very clearly ended. A lot of this is so foreign to us, we can't even imagine it. I mean, you know, I was actually reading someone commenting on this, and they said that in the 60s, the L.A. Times actually had recommended Bible reading plans, you know, in, in their newspaper. And that's just bizarre. We would never see that today. Um, and I know you may think, well, we still live in the South. People, you know, it, it matters that I'm a Christian, but does it? I mean, if, if you really step back and think about it, you go to work tomorrow, does your boss care whether or not you were at church today? I mean, you know, it, it, it doesn't matter. Um, how many of you actually feel social pressure from family, friends, to show up? In, in fact, if you stopped attending church for six months, how long would it take anyone in your life to actually ask you about it or care? This, this is, this is the, the world we're living in. We need to, we need to be aware of it. Um, 
I'm not yearning for a return to the good old days. That's, that's not why I'm saying this. Uh, I think recognizing this cultural shift can help explain why churches have responded the way that they have and why we may be tempted to respond the way that we may be tempted to respond. Many churches have adopted what's been labeled the attractional model for church growth because as we look out into a world where Christianity is no longer at the center of cultural life, we no longer have the benefit of just, you know, bosses, employers, random people pressuring people to come to the church. Now, it doesn't matter. So the way that we reach people in our city is going to look very, very different. And some churches have adopted an attractional model. Now, this model cares far more about ends than it does means. It's a, you know, kind of a bait-and-switch type thing. Get people in the door however you can. It doesn't matter what you need to do. Get them in the door, and then you give them Jesus. As long as they get Jesus, it doesn't matter what you do to make sure they get in the door. And, you know, I, there, <laughs> I was going to share, you know, three ways we have typically seen this, and I actually came up with three H's because I'm a good Baptist, okay? So we, we see this. We see this in three ways, and I know each of you have seen this, how churches try to attract people to church. First is hype. Hype. You hype it up. Next big event, you can't miss this. I remember, I mean, churches, they'll say this all the time. You got to come on Sunday. You don't want to miss what is going to happen. It's like, what's going to happen? He don't know. You know, it's, you know, the Lord is going to show up. It's going to be big. It's going to be like, you just like hype it up. Oh my goodness, I got to be, you just got to convince yourself. I have to be there. Um, you know, the next new program. I mean, I've heard of churches, their entire evangelistic model is based on their children's ministry program. That's it. Like, you need to come be a part of what we're doing because of what we do with our kids on Sunday nights or whatever it is, you know. And that's the driving force of it. Um, a charismatic leader, a new or better way of doing ministry. I remember this church in my hometown. I don't remember all of the things on the list. But they, when they were rebranding their church, it was, an, it was a historic Baptist church, and they, they had this new pastor, and they decided to rebrand, and they were going to be, be cool now. Well, as they were doing that, and they were inviting people to their church, they sent out this, they had this campaign, they had this flyer, and it was like 10 reasons why you need to visit our church. I don't remember any of them, but one of them I think I'll probably never forget. This, this guy put on this chain, it literally said, you need to visit our church if your church's music makes you think more about the seventh inning stretch than Jesus. And so it was all kinds of different things. Like, you know, oh, you may have missed that, the organ, you know, like he was basically just down in organs, okay? So um, it was basically like, okay, you don't like the music at your church, you need to come to our church because we have music you like. You know, it's hype. It's hype, and you get people in. Okay, another one, pretty common, hysteria. Hysteria. This is where you promise people. Your life is messed up. You come to church. You come to our church in particular. Your life's going to be better. You say, all your problems are going to go away. You're going to get wealthy. You're going to get healthy. If you just have enough faith, everything's going to work out. Okay, so you attract people with hysteria. And then finally, horror. And this one's a little new to me. We didn't have a whole lot of this where I grew up. Evidently, it might be a little bit more common around here. Judgment houses, you know, stuff like that. Okay, um, you know, not, not dogging anybody. No judgment out there, okay? Um, uh, no pun either. Um, but uh, so judgment houses, what you do, you scare people to Jesus. You know, you just, you if we can just scare them enough, yeah, it's probably not the best way. There might be another way, but who cares as long as they believe in Jesus? You know, the ends justifying the means. All kinds of different attractional models out there. You've probably experienced some of them. And, you know, maybe, maybe we have been guilty of the same thing, too. It's like, oh, yeah, your church over there does that. We don't do that, okay? We would never do that. Here's what we do. 
And, and so you become more about the specific ways you're doing it. It becomes more about preferences than anything else. But these methods, more often than not, swing and miss because they create confusion about the source of attraction. All right? So there's this saying among those who criticize these methods, and they say, what you win them with is what you win them to. So if you attract people with a hype, with hype, hysteria, or horror, you're winning them to a hyped-up, hysterical, and horrific Jesus. And you better hope they don't read the Bible, because then they're going to be extra confused, because that's not how Jesus is presented in the Bible. And it's equally true that what you win them with, you keep them with. So people who are attracted by hype will have to be kept by hype, and, and so on. This model, as we know it, is the result of misapplied good intentions at best and sheer deception at worst. However, however, we could easily say that the early church did follow an attractional model for church growth. There is an attractional model that the church should embody. And like all churches in this city, we want more people in Tupelo to be attracted to our church because we want them to be attracted to Jesus. We want them to come to Jesus. Which means that if we're going to do that, we have to ask this question, and Acts 2 helps us with this. How do we attract people to us in such a way that they are actually attracted to the real Jesus? You see, we want people to be attracted to our church because we are beautifully reflecting the person of Jesus, and we, we don't want there to be any other reason. Luke, the author of Acts, shows us how the early church attracted people to Jesus. And it is simultaneously more ordinary and extraordinary than you might imagine. So what was this compelling way of life, and what can we learn from it? That's, that's what we're going to do the rest of our time. Um, the culture of the early church was essentially marked by two things. First, it's marked by the way that they gathered together, and second, it's, it's marked by the way that they scattered, how they lived their lives whenever they weren't in the same place at the same time. So when they gathered and, and when they scattered, that's, that's what he's showing here. And so I want to make two points this morning. Our church will be attractive in Tupelo when we gather as a fellowship, okay? When we gather as a fellowship. And then second, our church will be attractive to people in Tupelo when we scatter as a family, all right, when we gather as a fellowship and when we scatter as a family. All right, let's look at Acts 2 to break these down. First, our church will be attractive in the city when we gather as a fellowship. So that's the first thing to notice here. The early church, what they started to do. They, you have these people who are coming to faith in Jesus. They're, they're being filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and what did they do? Luke, Luke's essentially just describing in short form what the early church did. And the first thing that they did is that they gathered together. Acts 2.42, a lot of scholars believe, is essentially the, the liturgy of the early church. When they gathered together for worship, this is what they did. They probably did more, but this is a snapshot of what they did. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Three things are mentioned here that are undergirded by this, this massive, bigger, wider um, um, philosophy that I want us to, to mention. So, three things that they did. First, we good? All right, we'll, I'll keep trying. Hey, next, come in here. Thank you. All right, um, man, that's two weeks in a row. Two weeks in a row. Thanks, Zach. 
Um, all right, three things the early church did. First, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The early church was a Bible-teaching church. Now, what scriptures did these early Christians have? Is they're gathering together for worship and someone's going to teach? What scriptures did they have? Just the Old Testament, right? Because, first of all, Acts is not being written, it's being lived. Um, Paul is not a Christian at this point, and, uh, you know, none of the other apostles have written anything down. So, basically, it's the oral tradition of the apostles themselves, the men who lived with Jesus. Tell us about that. What did he say? Essentially, what they were talking about week in and week out is what we find in the Gospels, and maybe even a little bit more. But the apostles, their teaching, what they learned from the Lord Jesus, the, the people gathered together to sit under that teaching because they knew that their very lives, their new lives in Christ, depended on the word of the Lord. And they would do exactly what Peter did. When Peter preached that sermon, where did he go? He went to the Old Testament. He went to Psalm 16. He went to Psalm 110. And so I'm sure they did that from time to time. They would go to the Old Testament passages and say, how is this fulfilled in Jesus? But they, they gathered together and they sat under the teaching of the word. So if we're going to be a church that attracts people in Tupelo, we have got to remain devoted to the apostles' teaching in the New Testament as well as the scriptures in the Old Testament. Second, so they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Second, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Now, I'm not going to walk you through all the, the you know, debates about whether this is referring to just ordinary meals in homes or or worship just know that the the majority of scholars believe that when luke uses this phrase the breaking of bread it's his way of referring to the lord's supper so anytime the church got together they took bread they broke it they took wine they drank it and they remembered jesus's death in their place so the early church was a christ-centered church the lord's supper played a central role in the worship of the early church and so today what we're going to do i know we're breaking tradition today y'all we're getting wild all right so typically we take the lord's supper the first sunday of every month it's the last sunday of the month and we're going to take the lord's supper this morning all right so save your anger for an email tomorrow if you're upset about that um uh, but we're going to take the lord's supper together um and this is what the, the early church did. When they got together, they took the Lord's Supper and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and, one final thing, they prayed. I love how ordinary this is. Look at this, look at this order of worship. They come together. Someone's teaching. An apostle is teaching. They take the Lord's Supper together and they pray. I mean, listen, I'm sure they did more. I'm sure they sang, we know they sang songs, you know, we complicate things and we think that we could never grow we could never really grow unless we had some type of just in-depth study that's happening all the time um you know worship that just always leaves this emotional impact on your heart the early church grew through these ordinary means they read the scriptures someone taught they took the lord's supper and they prayed they prayed we're the ones who minimize prayer. It meant everything to these early Christians. Have you noticed so far in Acts how often they have prayed? We're two chapters in. As soon as Jesus ascends into heaven, what do his disciples do? They don't get in a room and start planning and scheming. They get in a room and they get on their knees and they pray. And we need to be people who are praying. We need to have more prayer in our services, not less. Prayer in church services often are just like transitions. You know, it's just kind of what you do between the important things. 
but we need to be a praying church just like the early church was so they devoted themselves to the prayers now again these practices were attractive people saw the early church gathering like this and they wanted in on it why it's so ordinary Jews prayed prayer wasn't new the Lord's Supper uh, granted was probably a little bit new in the way they emphasized it but they had Passover you know it's it's similar they they believed in teaching so it's not like there's just this brand new element that they just had to check out why were people in Jerusalem so attracted to this type of gathering what was it it was the way they gathered they gathered as a fellowship a fellowship they didn't just gather as individuals trying to glean insights to take home and apply to their individual lives they gathered as a fellowship now a fellowship it's you know you see it in verse 42 they devoted themselves to the fellowship it essentially means sharing if, if you were just going to translate it very simply fellowship means sharing when used to describe a community it refers to a community with a shared common life they had fellowship both with Jesus and with one another Luke tells us later in verse 44 that they were together they were together look at it, it says and all who believed were together unity a common bond marked the early church this means despite how much introverts like me would maybe prefer it to be this way there is no such thing as a solo Christianity there's no such thing there's no category for it in the Bible you notice in verse 47 just this small detail Luke says that the Lord added to their number everyone who was being saved two things there the Lord's saving and the Lord's adding the people who were saved to the church so there is no category in scripture for an unsaved church member or an unchurched Christian ideally no one will be saved and not added to the church and no one will be added to the church and not be saved the early church functioned in this way they were a fellowship a community with a shared life in God and in one another when you met a Christian you knew that they were a part of a very specific and loving and others oriented community now we belong to one another just as much as we each individually belong to God why is that attractive why is that attractive well if you remember Acts is historical narrative Luke is telling a story but in this little short summary section there's an important assumption that Luke is using but not stating Luke is describing a community that exists as a community solely on the basis of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. It's not as if these were just the Jewish outcasts. And they were like, hey, you know what? We have a lot in common. Like, we've been kicked out by the, by the Jews. We don't fit in over there. Like, let's, let's just get together around this shared common goal. No. The only thing that these people had in common was their faith in Jesus. That was it. And that's why it was so beautiful. Anyone was welcome. It's going to extend and include Gentiles. You're a Gentile, who cares? You believe in Jesus, you're welcome. That's beautiful. That's attractive. When we say the church is a fellowship, and when we say that you belong to one another, what we're actually saying is that our belonging is not based on anything we bring to the table. It's based completely on what Jesus brings. 
The attractive beauty of our unity in Christ is that we do not demand uniformity. We can be different. We can be different from each other. And yet we are one fellowship. We have a shared common life in Jesus and with one another. Not because we're very similar, but because we have the same Savior. We are one in Christ. And so for people in our city, you know, in an identity politics driven world where you're lumped into groups, when we say, no matter who you are, no matter your background, no, no matter, you know, what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter who you're with, no matter what you've believed in the past, you come to faith in Jesus, you turn from sin and trust in Jesus, and you day one belong just as much as anyone else in here does. That's the kind of culture that the early church had, and that's the kind of culture that I would love to see us create. And I hope you see this. This is why I push so hard for us to gather as often as we can on Sunday mornings. It is only on Sunday mornings that we see this. The saddest thing to me is that we have to have two services on Sunday morning because we're naturally separated. You know, the early risers from the bums, right? We're the bums, right? Um, <laughs> just kidding, guys. Um, but, uh, we're separated right now. But once we're able to come back to one service, Sunday morning is the one day a week where we get to practically see that we're all together. That's why we don't have solos. We sing together. We pray together. We sit under the teaching of the word together. We give together. We bless one another with a benediction at the end together. We confess our sins, and we don't just do it as individuals. We do it together. When we take the Lord's Supper, we take it together because we are one. We are a fellowship. So I want to encourage you. I understand. When you leave this place, and we have life groups, and, and we have small groups, and you, you start trying to get to know different people in the church, you are naturally going to flock to people who are similar to you. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's human nature. It's who we are. We flock to people who are similar to us in similar life situations. I think we should be on guard and make sure we're not, you know, only focusing on certain people in the church. But, you know, it's, it's human nature. But never forget, on Sunday mornings, when we come together in this fellowship, we get to demonstrate our shared life in Christ, even if you're not spending a ton of time with people outside. So, Listen, a community that gathers as a fellowship will be marked by unity and love and will grow in unity and love despite our differences. And that is the type of community that I want to be a part of. Okay, so our church will be attractive when we gather as a fellowship. But, but finally, our church will be attractive when we scatter as a family. So the early church, not so different from us, they, they, they had lives, too. They worked. They had families. So they gathered for worship, and they couldn't gather for worship every single day. There was no way they could do that. So what did the early church do when they weren't in the same place at the same time? So the rest of the week, what did it look like for the early church? How did they scatter, and, and what can we learn from that? Well, they essentially did two things. I'm sure they did more, but two things are highlighted by Luke here. When they scattered, they shared their resources and they shared their lives. Okay, first they shared their resources. Look with me at verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. They shared their resources. The early church 
was a generous, sacrificial church. Here's what they realized. They have the Spirit now. They see the sacrifice and generosity of Christ on the cross. And they look at this new community that they have now been grafted into. And as they look out and they see other people in need, they want to imitate Jesus. That the Spirit is moving them toward other people in their in their midst and they sacrifice of themselves we literally see men and women in this day probably primarily men who own property selling their property selling their possessions i mean in a day with with jews at this day property was everything and they would sacrifice they would sell their own possessions their stuff so that they could help meet the needs of other people in the in the congregation listen that's what we're called to do We are called to live sacrificial, generous lives for the sake of one another. And and my family has directly benefited from generosity, even in a small way. Last week, when I mentioned that our boys were sick and, you know, Erica was at home, so many of you responded by, by either saying you're praying for us, asking them what we need. And there were some who actually literally drove to the store, bought stuff for us, came to our house, and just dropped it off. Left a little note just to care for us. I mean, you know, that, that showed us in that moment. You guys didn't wake up, whoever did that. You know, you didn't wake up and say, okay, today I've got to go to church. After church, I'm going to go get stuff for the Gilberts and take it over there, and then I'm going to go get some lunch. We weren't in your, you know, calendar, and, and yet you, you served us. You showed us that we were more valuable to you than your time, your resources, and your money, and that's exactly what the early church did. They viewed one another as more valuable, more significant, more worthy of love than they were of of hoarding their own stuff. So we need to hold our stuff loosely. Um, And if you feel disconnected or disjointed or out of place in this season, like many of us do, then I want to encourage you to do two things this week. Here's, Here's some homework. First, make a list of those in our faith family who have generously sacrificed for you. Nothing in return. They have generously sacrificed and given to you because you were in need. I'm telling you, if you do that, the gratitude that will fill your heart, the joy that will fill your heart, the love for our church that will fill your heart, it will, it will not compare with anything else. Okay, so that's first. Second, if you're feeling out of place, ask yourself, when was the last time that I generously sacrificed for someone else? Just, just ask yourself, when, when's the last time? I generously sacrifice for someone else. And the answer is, man, it's been a minute, or uh, I don't know, let's see, maybe never. Um, I promise you, if you look for needs, needs are there. If you hear of needs and you respond the way Jesus responds to us with generosity and sacrifice, it will immediately draw you in, and we will build better community here. It's just the way it works. So the early church, they shared their resources. But second... And this one's convicting to me personally. They shared their lives. And COVID has been the best excuse for me not to share my life with people. It's like, well, you know, I'd love to hang out, but um, COVID, can't, sorry, love to go out and eat COVID, can't do it. It's been, it's been the best excuse. And then, you know, there are some just realities. I would love, we would love to have more people at our house. We're like, no, I mean, COVID's real. Like, it's, it's a big deal. We don't want to, you know, unnecessarily put people at risk. But we can't get away from the fact that part of new life in Jesus is sharing our lives with other believers. The early church, it seems, based on Luke's description here, that they couldn't get enough of each other. Look at verse 46. 
Luke writes, And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Day by day, y'all, these early Christians were together doing various activities. They were going to the temple. They were sharing meals in each other's homes. They were rejoicing in one another. So they didn't just share resources when people were in need. They just, they just included their fellow believers in their lives. They welcomed them in. You know, I feel like we have a hesitation to that. We want to keep people at arm's length. We don't want people to get too close. We might, you know, give a lunch a month or something like that to someone. But we, we're uncomfortable with people actually being a part of our lives. Part of growth in Christ involves other people being a part of your life, though. Sharing life together is part of new life in Jesus. And so a spirit-filled church will be an others-oriented church. We will sacrifice our time. We will give our time to one another. And I know that's tough because a lot of us were taught that Christianity is personal only. Personal. My business. My faith. My business. None of yours. And then we just go to church, you know, to, to grow personally, individually. But the truth is that sharing our very lives with one another is a sign that the Spirit is in us. Now, why on earth did the early church live like this? And, and why was it attractive to the people that saw? Because at that first century, people were involved in each other's lives far more than they are right now. I mean, it was a thing, okay? But why was it especially attractive? It was attractive because the early church scattered as a family. When, when they weren't gathering together, when, when they went about their business, the reason that they're sharing resources the reason that they're sharing their lives is because they actually viewed themselves as a real family. I mean, when you actually think about that metaphor for the church, and we're going we're gonna to talk about that on Wednesday nights, um, this, the rest of the semester for 10 weeks, we're going to talk about different metaphors of, of church membership and family is one of them. Listen, what do you do with your family? Well, if, if you have kids, you know you share resources, okay? <laughs> um, you share resources, you share your lives. You're involved. There's this family ethic of what's mine is yours. We try that in our house, you know, not my toy, but, but our toys, you know, type, type deal. Not, not my car, our, our car, you know. Um, not my food, our food. That, that is true in our house except for the salads. The, they, can, they can keep the salads. Um, that's all Erica and Jack. They, they can have the salads. But, you know... What's mine is not just mine. What's mine is yours. What I have, you have. We share. Our, our life is together. This is tough, guys. This is the calling of the local church. We are supposed to live like that. What's mine is yours. What's yours is mine. A shared life together as a family. The early church was full of so much family love that they didn't even consider their own property, possessions, homes, time, or money as solely belonging to them. If, if we're going to grow and become a church that is attractive, that builds a culture that other people want to get in on, then the best way we can do that is to start living like a family. And the Lord will empower that. I want to close just by looking at a couple impacts here. Um, 
this, this community that was dependent on the Lord through prayer, that was centered on Christ in their worship, that devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that was empowered by the Spirit, and was focused on others. This, this new community experienced two things because of the way they lived. By living this way, as a fellowship and as a family, they were filled with awe, and they were filled with praise. Verse 43, and awe came upon every soul, and then down in verse 47, they were praising God. If that's not your response to our local church, if you're not full of awe, and I'll be honest with you guys, anytime someone serves our family, I get filled with awe. It blows my mind. It blows my mind that the Lord works in people in such a way that it causes them to think of us and want to serve us. So it happens. But if you're not filled with awe, if, if our gatherings don't lead you to praise, then it's, it's entirely possible that either you're wrongly evaluating what our church should be because it's totally possible to have unfair, unbiblical expectations of a church. People want the church to be a lot of things the church wasn't supposed to be. And it's also possible that as a church, we have a lot of room to grow. And we need to become more focused on Bible teaching or being Christ-centered or being more dependent on the Lord through prayer or, or by serving one another, by sharing resources and sharing our lives. But once we start pursuing this, our hearts will respond with joy and gladness. And then people outside the community will look in and they will see and we will have favor and honor and respect and people will look to Jesus with faith. Because they're seeing people who are genuinely changed by the real Jesus.